and you come into a Sunday school class and you're out for blood to show that biblically you are right on a given issue, you have missed the purpose of Christian education. You can be 100% right in content and 100% wrong in how you relate to a brother or a sister. And this particular instruction to me says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Meaning if you are tempted to say, and there's an error in the title of your paper, hold back. Be careful. Your goal is to encourage him as you would a father. And so as I look around at some of the seniors of our church, sometimes I apply a kind of fatherly lens. And I say, man, would I say this to my dad this way? I have a good relationship to my dad. Dad says, probably. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a line from Anna Green Gables. <laughs> I didn't put this in my notes where she says, if you only knew the things that I don't say, you would give me so much more credit than you do. <laughs> there is a fatherly lens that instructs us how to relate to seniors. He says, young man, treat an older man as a father. And it's, it's helpful. Younger men as brothers. And man, brothers fight sometimes, right? Younger men... I love, 1 John has this division too where he describes fathers and younger men. And younger men, I believe, man, it's our job. Iron sharpening iron. Let's go. Let's try to understand the scriptures accurately. Let's confront each other when we're mistaken. Let's sharpen each other. Then he says, older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. Man, as I look at some of the senior ladies of our church, sometimes I've thought, man, would I say it that way to my mom? And it's a helpful question to ask. A couple weeks ago, I gave you the goofy illustration of the great fight over almonds in our kitchen. And I had a couple of senior ladies bringing this concern to me. And I thought, man, if my mom had this concern, I would not be like, I don't have time for this. I got to go. And so it helped me to sit down and listen. It was helpful for me to think, okay, you're not my mom, but Timothy tells you, you're an older lady in the church. If I'm going to honor you and respect you in words and in the time that I take with you, I need to treat you as a mom. And, and younger women as sisters in all purity. You know, in the context of a Me Too world, some men are tempted to say, I'm just not going to have anything to do with younger women. There's a risk there. And I think that's a terrible mistake. That leaves the body divided. That means that we would not be treating each other as equals in Christ because we don't trust each other. And instead, the scripture says, treat younger women as sisters in all purity. And so it's been a helpful question for me to ask as I, as I talk to Lauren, like, how do we navigate this? Would I be okay talking to my sister about this in this environment, in this place? And these instructions 
are very relevant to how we conduct ministry in the 21st century American context where we live. Sometimes they push us to places that are uncomfortable because it would be easier to be safe. And yet our responsibility is to walk as the family that God has created us to be. So honor in the church first means that we relate to every person in the congregation as family. And he's speaking to Timothy as a pastor, as a leader in the congregation, but the same holds true for every member of the congregation. The respect in our speech and in our time is required in order to maintain the type of family relationship that God intends for us to have. But before I even go to the next portion of this passage, I want to pause for a second and ask you to think about what the word honor means. What is he saying when he says that we are to honor other people? Now he begins talking about the relationship to older men, younger men, older women, younger women, But he moves and begins to talk about what it means to honor widows and later what it means to honor elders. And I think the concept of honor permeates this entire passage. He he wants us to understand that we're to treat older men and older women as parents in the faith. And what does the Lord say in the Ten Commandments? But to honor your father and mother. So even before he uses the word in verse 3, the concept of honor is in verses 1 and 2, and it means we need to think about what honoring means. What does it mean to honor your father and mother? Well, partly the scripture demonstrates a responsibility to care for them when they are no longer able to care for themselves. Now that happens in adulthood. And I believe that we're about to see an application of that principle for some senior ladies in the church. But before you get to that season of life, Scripture says to children, children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So there's an element of obedience that is part of that honor. There's an element of respect in how we use words. And then as we age, there's an element of financial responsibility. And I think you see all of those things in this text. You see the element of respect in verses 1 and 2. Specifically, do not rebuke an older man, okay? Be careful with how you use your words. Now, Paul has told Timothy that he is to never compromise on the truth of Scripture. And he is to boldly stand for the truth. And so there may be a time when he gently encourages an older man that the Scriptures perhaps perhaps teach and show something different. And that's not being dishonoring to an older man. That's being a faithful pastor in a gentle way. And yet that attitude of respect must permeate Timothy's attitude in life as he relates to older people in the congregation. And then in verse 3, Paul highlights a different type of honor 
towards a particular group of people. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Paul says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, I want to make a break between verses 4 and 5 because I think there's a shift in topic, but read verse 5 with me as well. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, a couple things. I've got two goofy analogies that I want to work through here. One of them is just the simple concept of what a widow is. If there's ever something that you thought was cut and dry, it's widowhood. Is your husband still with us? Yes or no? If yes, not a widow. If no, yes, you're a widow. This is pretty easy in terms of our understanding of what a widow is. That's what the word means in English. But Paul introduces this strange idea, honor widows who are truly widows. So I thought for a moment as I was preparing about this goofy movie called The Princess Bride, where there's a scene where they want to bring this guy back from the dead, so they take him to Miracle Max, and Miracle Max describes how he's mostly dead. Mostly dead means he's partly alive. If he's all dead, the only thing you can do is search his pockets for loose change. But since he's mostly dead, they concoct this scheme to bring him back, and, and, and he comes back and saves the day, and it's, it's a goofy movie. Paul is not telling Timothy to run around and figure out if husbands are mostly dead or really dead. That has nothing to do with it. The only way to understand this is to recognize that he's not talking about if you have had a husband or if your husband is dead. That's a part of it. But the real issue is, is this woman alone? Has she been abandoned? That's why twice in this text it says, if a widow has children, then she is not truly a widow. And in fact, in doing a little bit of research, the word that's used for widow here in Greek is broader than simply someone whose husband has died. Often that is what it means. But it also includes those, perhaps whose husbands are still living, but have abandoned them. Or those who have never been married at all and have no one to provide for them and no means to provide for themselves. So, understanding this passage does require some cultural nuance. So, I gave you one goofy analogy from The Princess Bride. That's not what this passage is talking about. I want to give you another goofy analogy uh, from the world of athletics. And last time I did this, I made the mistake of saying that Barry Sanders was a quarterback. And I'm hoping to avoid embarrassing myself in similar ways. But I want to ask you, how many of you guys have ever been to a baseball game of any kind? Baseball game of any kind. 
okay, there are enough hands that I don't see. I just want to do this. How many of you have never been to a baseball game ever of any kind? Okay. So I have no hope of explaining this um, for a few people. Just kidding. Uh, how many of you have ever been to a cricket game? I've got one. I've got... <laughs> okay. All right. How many of you have ever heard of cricket? Okay. There's hope. How many of you... I, they play it in the Olympics, but how many of you have ever seen water polo? Water polo. Water polo. Uh, so the game they used to play on horses, but they decided to be more fun in a pool. Um, here's what I want to suggest to you. When we approach a passage like this, there will be universal applications that we can directly apply to our church. Universal applications are like this. Honor your father and mother. 100% of people here have a father and a mother. Now, perhaps they're not living anymore. If that's the case, you still honor them and how you speak about them. Perhaps you never knew them, and if that's the case, you still are careful in how you think about them to obey the Lord and, and speak in ways that would not be wrong and sinful. Honor your father and mother has a very direct application because everyone here has fathers and mothers. There are other cases where I want to ask you to imagine a strange and unlikely scenario where a baseball coach was asked to then go coach a cricket game. Okay, for those of you who are less familiar with cricket, and to be honest, I, I did a little research on this. I don't think it's possible for Americans to understand cricket. After I researched it, I still don't understand it. It's like someone took a rule book for baseball and dodgeball and just ripped out a bunch of pages and combined them all together, and it doesn't make sense. But here's what does make sense. They still have a guy with a bat. They call it a cricket bat, and they still have a guy that throws a ball at him, and his job is to try to hit the ball, and then they have to run. Okay, That much is exactly the same as with baseball. In baseball, they have four bases where you're safe, and then in cricket, they have these weird zones where mostly you're not safe. So there are some things that a baseball coach could take directly from baseball and apply it in an attempt to coach a cricket game. He could say things like to the batter, if they even call him a batter, I don't, the guy with the bat, keep your eye on the ball right? That's good advice from baseball that applies perfectly in a world of cricket. There are those direct commands in this passage that apply perfectly to our contemporary world. There are, however, other areas where there would be little to no overlap. So there's no first base coach. There's, there's no one saying, hey, this is a good opportunity to steal a base, because there's no base. So some of what he would say does not apply directly. And when that happens, I believe that there is still a universal principle that is never contradicted. 
And we look for those universal principles and we apply them to areas of our church that are perhaps not written about in this context. So here's an indirect application. One thing that is said in a few places throughout Scripture is Christians are to honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Now, if I were only looking for direct applications, like honor your father and mother, there's my father, there's my mother, I'm good. I could say, I don't live in a country with an emperor. I am home free. And that would be completely negating the spirit and principle of the text. So when there is indirect application, I think of things like, oh, we may not have an emperor, but we do have a president. And I'm going to look and try to understand how the Bible instructs me to relate to my president. In fact, in, in this book, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. So I don't have a king, but I do have a whole lot of all who are in high positions. So I look for the universal principle that helps me apply this to our context. And I think you could say, let's like a baseball coach telling a cricket batter, keep your eye on the ball. It's a little bit different, but it holds true. You can imagine he might say, you know, wait for the right pitch, follow through on your swing. But then as soon as the batter connects with the ball, all of his coaching advice and experience is just out the window. Here is where I think we are with a less obvious indirect application. And this, I think, is maybe a little bit like a baseball coach coaching water polo. Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows in a culture that is different enough. We need to think carefully and accurately to understand how to obey this text. In no way do we minimize the command to take care of the poor and the needy. But we must make sure that we understand who it is we are to take care of and at the same time understand that in this text and in the next text, he's going to tell us there are some people that we should not take care of. In fact, some of the things that he says about this type of ministry, if we misapplied them, we would have to cancel our benevolence ministry. So we'll see this in just a minute. Spoiler alert, I don't think we should cancel our benevolence ministry. But I do want to make sure that we are careful and accurate in how we apply this text because I think, like a baseball coach coaching water polo, there are still some universal principles that we can apply, but we need to be careful where we apply them in our church. Let me give you the goofy analogy so we can focus the, the So if a baseball coach in a strange, bizarre scenario is invited to coach a water polo team, I think there are things he would say like this. Work as a team, okay? There's still a team, right? They still need to relate to each other properly, even if there's no bat and no bases and it's a totally different game. He can still say things like that. He can work on their personal dynamics. He might say things like, don't give up, okay? You, you still need to fight and to work hard to win the game. He might even grab some Yogi Bear-isms and say things like, it ain't over till it's over, 
Or maybe, you know, 90% of this game is half mental. My, my favorite Yogi Bearism. To do that with a passage like this, we need to try to understand what is universal and we need to carefully understand what directly applies and in those cases where there is not a direct application, we need to look for the universal principle that will apply. I believe that the Word of God does not change, but culture does change. So when a command is based in a culture that is different from ours, we look for the universal principle and we seek to uphold and obey the command carefully and diligently. This is the task of a faithful student of the Word of God, and it is the responsibility of every church and every church member. So with that said, let's read these verses again and talk a little bit about how we obey them. Verse 3 says, Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now pause for a second. That command gives us a clear idea of what he means by honoring widows. Okay, Paul wants us to relate towards all elderly ladies as mothers with respectful words, right? So he's already said you are giving that kind of honor to every woman within your church. But there are particular needy people that need more than just your affirmation. They need to have their basic financial needs met. And you get that by paying attention to what he says about children making some return to their parents. Okay, so the attitude is your parents fed you and clothed you and sheltered you and changed your diapers. And you need to return the favor when they are no longer able to take care of themselves. That's what it means to make return. So your parents gave you generously, and in response, your responsibility to them is to meet their needs when they are no longer able to, to meet their own needs. That's a type of honor that goes beyond the average church member. And it is a limited honor and it's limited in a couple of ways. First, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. In other words, don't do this for everyone just because a person maybe has lost her husband. Later on in this text, in fact, the passage I'm going to preach on next week talks about enrolling a widow. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Acts chapter 6 describes how the church had a particular ministry going around and providing daily meals to the widows in part of the congregation, which is why I don't believe it's right for us to take this passage and say, we need to daily cook meals for every female who has lost her husband in our church. Number one, it would misunderstand what the point of this passage is. The word honor is general enough. It doesn't mean you must provide food. Perhaps you could provide something else, like a check or a dollar amount. But also, bound up in this idea of honor is a lifelong commitment. When children honor their parents, it's not for a one-time need that will then disappear. Honor is a lifelong obligation. 
You don't age out of it. You are responsible to love and care for your parents for life. And in a similar way, these widows who are enrolled in the church's list, this is a lifelong commitment to care for them. So it becomes very important to make sure that the church is diligent and careful who it makes these commitments to. In this cultural context, widows had very limited opportunities to provide for themselves. In fact, it was so bad, there were times when if a widow's husband died, she was killed with her husband because there was no hope of life afterwards. Now, in a Christian community, it's so hopelessly inappropriate to do that. The Christian community is responsible as the family of God to step up and say, we will provide for you. But Paul makes it clear that that good-hearted ministry is not to be applied to everyone who lost her husband. If you pay attention to the next few verses, the godliness and character of the woman make a huge difference. And here's why. Next week we'll see more of this, but because it's strangely mixed and bound up with our text, I want to encourage you to look at verse 11. Verse 11. Paul says, Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ... They desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, there's a lot there, but here's what happens in this passage, in this verse. Paul is not opposed to younger widows remarrying. In fact, he encourages it. But the problem is, in this culture, if you married a non-believer, you necessarily embraced his gods as part of the ceremony. So you could not marry a non-believer without publicly professing that you were forsaking Christ. It's not a cut-and-dry issue in the first century. It's not a cut-and-dry issue now. Paul makes it clear that if you choose to enroll younger widows, you are making it easier for them to ultimately abandon Christ. And we'll say more about that next week. But that's why he specifically commands, do not do this. Instead, you should encourage them to do something else. And here's a universal principle that I want to just grab right now before we go any further. Here's a universal principle for our ministries, every ministry of the church. It is wrong to use charity to enable sin. It is wrong to use charity to enable sin. Sometimes it seems like the right thing to do to just generously give cash to someone. And sometimes it is. But ultimately... If you allow a person to persist in sin or even encourage them to continue in sin, you become complicit in that behavior. You become an enabler. Now, here's one thing that I want to make very clear. This type of reasoning, I don't believe, applies to something like our food pantry. And here's why. This ministry of enrolling widows who are godly, and we'll see that in a second, 
is applied within the church. Paul is talking with great focus about how to relate to people who are already part of the body. He is not talking about how to have compassion on the poor who are not part of the body. Okay, are we we clear on that? He's not talking about having compassion on someone in need who's not a Christian. And I believe the New Testament makes it very clear, and the example of the early church makes it very clear, that it's right and good to be generous with those who need basic necessities like food. It shows the heart of God who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It shows his love and compassion to be generous towards those who are outside the church. But here's the distinction. Charity and benevolence towards those outside the church is a witness and testimony to the love of God for them. If, however, you are enabling sin and dysfunction for those within the church, the same type of generosity could be taken as a sign what you do with your life doesn't matter. It'll all sort itself out in the end because in the, in, within the church, you are far more aware of the situation and you have a responsibility to be careful with the money that's intended to bless those who are godly. Now, to see this, we really need to look at the next couple of verses. Uh, and I'm arguing... Verses 3 and 4 are talking about a permanent enrollment in providing food and basic necessities for life. Now look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Timothy says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now, Paul expects that Timothy and the church would be able to make this type of judgment because they know the person who is already within the community of the church. And so we read those few verses from Luke that I think give a good picture of a godly woman who was left all alone, who set her hope on God, who continued in supplication and prayers night and day. And so if Anna were part of Timothy's church, they would have enrolled her and committed to care for her for the rest of her natural life. And that would have been a very direct application of this passage. However, he cautions that those who are self-indulgent are dead even while she lives, and so they should not be enrolled. And the universal application of that type of principle, I believe, is that churches must not become complicit in sin within the body. Churches must not become complicit with sin within the body. Even outside of a benevolence ministry, if we know a brother or a sister is in sin, we have a responsibility to lovingly confront and lovingly encourage repentance. And for the entire church, we have a responsibility to learn to trust in God and not in ourselves to meet our day-to-day needs. The universal application of these verses, I believe, teaches 
God's heart for the poor and for widows, which has not changed. And although our church, at least, and I would say most churches, do not provide regular financial assistance for any general church member, we do provide periodic financial assistance for church members, which I think is right and good, but it's not what Timothy's talking about here. It's not what Paul is talking about here. The universal principle is to care for the poor and for the needy. I believe it would be a mistake to read this and to think that if someone has never married, she doesn't qualify as a widow. In fact, I think it would be a mistake to take this verse and, and to say that if a woman was divorced but her husband was still living, even if he had abandoned her, that she didn't qualify as a widow. And I think the universal application of these verses say, church, lovingly care, especially for your godly widows. Now, our culture has built in systems of financial support so that by the mercy of God, not many people starve. But there are other ways that our widows desperately need care. And in fact, I believe that we can and should step up some of the ways that we care for our seniors in terms of relational and emotional support, making sure that people are not lonely. Now, looking at this passage, this is not a passage that is describing how to emotionally support your widows. So I am not taking this and twisting it and making it mean something else. What I am doing is saying, if God expects you to provide financially for widows, and the financial needs of many of our widows are already met, what else might God also expect us to do for our widows? And I believe the answer to that question, looking for a general principle, since the, the primary one is already met, is they need to feel the love of the body of Christ. Food on the table and a little bit of money in their bank account is not enough. The love of Christ is deeper than that. Making sure that no matter how old or young you are, you feel a part of our body in a meaningful way is absolutely the point of this passage. Honor is not less than meeting financial necessities. It's more than meeting financial necessities. You can imagine for a moment a son who is taking care of his elderly parents. No one would say he is a good and faithful son if he faithfully writes a check, but he never calls and never visits. Okay, a check is one thing that will maybe keep the lights on and keep food on the table, but honor is more than that, not less. And so I think there's good reason that the word Paul used for honor includes financial support, but it's broader than that. It means a type of emotional care and respect that ought to be true of how we relate to our seniors and ought to be true, especially of how we relate to those godly ladies that pray for our church, that have been faithful in trusting the Lord for their entire lives. So the universal principle that applies to us is there is a real need to continue caring for our widows. And in the, the last section, before I close, is that the ways that we run our ministries 
must honor God in faith. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. Excuse me. Um, Verses 7 and 8. I apologize. Uh, It says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, my last point this morning is honor God in public ministry. Honor God in public ministry. So the ways that we care for our physical parents matter, and the way our church cares for those who are needy among us matters as a way of publicly showing the goodness of God. Paul says that we command these things in ministry so that our ministries must be without reproach. I want to pause on that phrase, without reproach, for just a second. And imagine that Timothy completely lacks the ability to have discernment. He's got kind of a bleeding heart. And he says, you know what? We want to make sure that everyone has their needs met. And so the church, man, they, they give generously and sacrificially. And they're enrolling people left and right. And in one way, their widow ministry is exploding. But they have not vetted the ladies that they include in their widow's ministry. And as a result of that, the church in Ephesus becomes known as a place where gossips and drunks hang out. And he later will mention the danger of enabling ungodliness by subsidizing it financially. And so, the church is no longer without reproach. Instead, the reputation of the church, that it's full of gossips. It's full of people that enjoy a little bit too much wine. And it's full of people that only live to please themselves. And in fact, the whole church takes a giant offering to subsidize it. That is a complete failure of benevolence ministry to demonstrate godliness. So he says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Not only is there to be discernment in how a benevolence ministry is run or how a compassion ministry is run, but also he is adamant twice in this passage that children must take care of their parents first. Twice, he makes it clear that there is an obligation to meet the material and emotional needs of your parents. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a harsh warning. So don't go to church and sing songs of praise to God and fail to take care of your family members. There is a responsibility to meet the material needs of those that you are physically related to. And and at times, I've talked to church members who had to step back from ministry for a little while because their parents were in that stage of life where they really required a lot, a tremendous amount of personal hands-on care. And when that happens, sometimes there's a layer of spiritual guilt on top of that. Or like, Pastor, you know, I'm so sorry that I haven't been in prayer meeting. Or Pastor, I'm so sorry that I haven't been able to serve in children's ministry. Pastor, I'm sorry. Like, whatever it is, 
That happens a lot. I've heard this more than once. Pastor, you know, I'm sorry. I just I have to take care of my mom. This passage says your first priority before a ministry of the church is to take care of your mom or your dad. In fact, it gives you this beautiful little phrase that it's pleasing to God. Verse 4, it's pleasing in the sight of God when you honor your parents. So I want to publicly say, get rid of the guilt for that. What you are doing is pleasing to God when you take care of those who changed your diapers. God says it's right, it's good to do. You don't need to feel bad about that. I believe that is a direct one-to-one correlation that this passage speaks to each of us. Honoring your parents, and then secondly, I believe that we have a responsibility to care for those who are among us. I do think one of the clearest ways that the church does this is in caring for retired missionaries. That is a lifelong commitment where we send a portion, not in its entirety, but a portion to care for those who dedicated their lives to serve the Lord. That is as close as we get to a 100% direct application of this passage. And now the rest, I believe, takes wisdom and community to apply to the other areas that are not as direct. Paul is not talking about our food ministry in this passage, but this passage has things to say about our food ministry. Since it is not direct, and in fact, I would say it's maybe maybe somewhere between cricket and water polo, if I can go back to that analogy for a second, it takes wisdom to understand how to take this passage and apply it to a benevolence ministry so that our ministry is above reproach. We don't want to enable substance abuse or physical abuse in a home. We do want to make sure that those who are unable to provide for themselves have their basic necessities met. We don't want to enable laziness in the home. However, we don't ever want to judge someone and stand in the place of God and say, you can't have food because I don't think you're working hard enough. And so the the wisdom that is required to apply a text like this to a ministry that is different from this, I believe requires community and open conversations. I think every area of our church should continually be submitting itself to the word of God, asking, how can we be more faithful for the good of the church and the goodness of our community? Last thing that I want to say as we close. James makes it so clear in his letter. In fact, I think James is in some ways one of the most practical letters of the New Testament that if anyone sees a brother or a sister in need and says, go, be be blessed of God, be warmed and well-fed, but does not meet their need, they have done them no good. And so friends, if you are aware of a need within the church and it's within your ability to meet that need, I would say to you, go and meet it first. And if you don't have the ability to meet that need, bring it to the church and let's faithfully care for those that God has made part of our fellowship. Would you pray with me? Father, as we seek to take your word and to put it into practice, I ask that you would give us the humility 
to listen carefully and to apply it accurately. Like Solomon in praying for wisdom, I ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom that our ministries would be above reproach. That as your heart to care for widows and orphans has never changed, that we would have your heart to care for the needy among us. Lord, I praise you for the ways that our church has met the needs of this community for so long, and I pray that you would bless us so that we can continue doing it until you return. Father, I pray that you give us wisdom that we would bring you glory in how we care for our parents. And I ask that the reputation of this church would point straight to Jesus. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I dismiss you this morning, I want to remind you we do have a meeting at 3 o'clock, so I hope to see most of you very soon. And I want to leave you with a blessing from Scripture. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.